And in your Bibles this morning, the book of Colossians, chapter number 3. Colossians, chapter number 3. The series is Learning to Love. Learning to Love, something we have to learn every day of our lives, don't we? Learning to Love, and the message today is your life principle. What is life for? What is life for? And I hope you'll listen real closely, and we'll begin by reading God's Word, the book of Colossians, chapter 3. And will you stand with me as we begin reading in verse number 12, and we'll read through verse 14, a short passage today. Colossians 3, 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. Somebody said that means putting up with one another <laughs> and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Boy, that's, that bears rereading, doesn't it? Even if we have a quarrel against another, even as Christ forgave us, so we forgive others. And verse 14 is the text. Above all these things, above all these things, that'd be priority, wouldn't it? Put on charity. Now, we've learned that the word charity in the Bible refers to agape love, a specific kind of love, a giving, unselfish type of love. Above everything else, put on agape love, which is the bond of perfectness. You may be seated. I want to read verse 14 to you. I kind of looked up a bunch of words, and I looked up different translations of the Bible, and I'm going to read it, my own made-up uh, exposition of it or translation. It's not a translation, but... A paraphrase of it, I guess. Verse number 14. Here's how, here's what I believe sincerely this means. Above everything else, put on agape love, which is the unifying principle that will bind everything in your life together in perfect unity. Let me read it again to you. Above everything else, put on agape love. It's the unifying principle that binds everything in your life together in perfect unity. Now, the reason that I worked on that verse a little bit is because once you get by the word charity there in verse 14, which is the bond of perfectness, and I looked up several different sources and the definitions and the Greek rendering of it and so on. And the idea is that love is the one unifying principle that pulls everything else in life together for us and makes us complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, man, it's a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture when you think of it in that way. Sooner or later in your life, you're going to have to go down deep inside your soul. And you're going to have to ask yourself, 
probably some night when you can't sleep because your heart is so alive with this. Sooner or later, you're going to go down deep into your soul, and you're going to have to ask yourself, what is life for? It'll probably come after you've had some great failure, and you're despondent and depressed feeling, and you'll say to yourself, what's life about? Or, on the other hand, it might be after some long-anticipated dream of success, and finally you achieve it. You get to the top of the hill. The victory is won. But then you sit down in the stillness of the night, and that emptiness comes. And you say, is this all there is to life? I thought when I achieved this, why, I'd find everything that I wanted in life. You read in the Bible, sometimes people hit the bottom after they had just hit the top. Elijah had that great, great experience where fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice that he had made, and then he goes into a despondency. He sits under a juniper tree, and he says, Lord, why don't you take my life? I don't even want to live anymore. He was suicidal. And he had just had the greatest success he'd ever had in life. And the psychologist even will agree with us on that, that you're vulnerable to really going deep inside yourself after great successes, but also after great failures. And sometime, sooner or later, all of us go deep within ourselves and we ask that. And when, so when I ask you what is life for, I mean, what is your life principle? What is that one unifying principle that verse 14 talks about? The unifying principle that around which all of your life tends to unify and it holds everything in your life together. When I use the term a life principle, here's what I mean. A dominant set of beliefs, principles, morals, values that guide my decision making and that uh, direct all my behavior in life. When I make a decision... This is the thing that I may not even think about it. It may be unconsciously done. But this is the thing that I say, this is the direction I ought to go. This is the decision I ought to make. And Colossians 3.14 says that one unifying principle in life for the Christian ought to be the principle of love. Love for God first and love for other people second. But it's not like that for everybody. It's not like that for most people, in fact. In fact, for some, the unifying principle of their life is safety. I've seen that during COVID here. And I've seen people cower in fear. There are people still that I know of, they refuse to even come out of their home. They, they've become reclusive hermits because of fear. They cower. Their, their goal is to avoid all danger, to never take a risk, no matter how low the risk might be. And that guides them. That's the unifying principle of their life, to, to, uh, of fear, of safety. For others, it's fun. Man, we don't care what happens. If there's fun to be had, I'm going to be there. For others, it might be greed. They'll get... 
the, the unifying principle, the thing that their whole life is tied together around is, is greed. It's things. It's making money or whatever. Other people, the principle that unifies their life is pleasing other people. They live for the approval of other people. Boy, I, I, I've seen this so often in life that people make their decisions. The thing that drives them is the opinion of their peer group. You see this particularly among young people, teenagers and so on, the youth, is they so hunger for the approval of other people that uh, they never make an independent decision. They're incapable of it because whatever the group thinks, that's what they think. And so they are driven by pleasing others, seeking approval. Then many of us, the goal of life is success in some form. It's defined by money, or it might be defined by position or power or wealth, which usually accompanies those things. It might be prestige. It might be recognition for accomplishments and achievements. And we, that is the thing. Every, every decision is made, well, will this bring me recognition or will this bring me money or power or whatever it is? So they have all these different things that are the, the, the life principle that drives people. And the book of Colossians, though, says, above all the other things in life, put on agape love, which is the unifying principle that characterizes the Christian in his or her life. And as you go through life, and you're going to find this out, I'm finding this out in my life that the habits that we've developed in life, they become more and more and more ingrained in us. I read something recently. It said, I quote, in the twilight of life, our habits rule us. Old cranks have practiced all their life, and old saints have too, just different principles. <laughs> I like that, don't you? Well, you don't like it enough. I'll read it again. Maybe you didn't hear it. In the twilight of life, habits rule us. Old cranks have practiced all their life. I've met some of them. I'm trying not to be one of them right now. They practice all their life to be cranky, but old saints have practiced too. Just different life principles. So my question to you is what I started out with. What's your life principle? What is that one unifying thing in your life that kind of pulls everything else together that helps you make every decision? It's ingrained habitually into your life that you don't even have to think about it now. What's your life for? What's life about? Very, very basic question, isn't it? Well, I want you to take your, uh, turn in your Bible with me over to the book of Matthew. And I'd like for you to go, or pardon me, Luke. I'd like for you to go to Luke chapter number four, if you will. Luke chapter four, the life principle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at it for a few minutes. That one unifying thing that drove the Lord Jesus Christ all of his life. Every decision that he made was based upon it. This was his guide star. This was his radar. This was his road map in life. And in chapter 4 of the book of Luke, verse 1, Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost, notice that now, he returned from Jordan where he'd been baptized in the previous passage. And he was now led by the Spirit 
Keep that in mind. He, everything he is doing now, he is being led by the Holy Spirit who indwells him as a man. You say he was God. Yes, but he temporarily laid aside the prerogatives of his de deity so he could function as a man and show us a perfect life. And he's full of the Holy Spirit and being 40 days tempted of the devil. And so he's entering this period of temptation. It's early in his ministry. He has not yet begun to preach and teach. He's not yet cast out a demon. He's not yet healed a person. Early in his ministry, as he begins his ministry, Satan comes and for 40 days puts him through this intense time of temptation. And to make it even more difficult, in those days he did eat nothing. And when those days were ended, he afterward hungered. The idea after we're hungered is this intense hunger comes upon him as the body is literally breaking down. People tell me in these long, long fasts that you get to a point where all you can think about is food. The, the temptation to eat is overwhelming. It's just your body is starving after 40 days. So think of the intense uh, temptation that this is going to present him. And think also that this temptation comes upon him at the time he is the weakest he ever was in his life. He is weak physically, which affects him psychologically and in other ways as well. And so here's Jesus, a young man, 30 years old, facing the devil. He meets the devil face to face. And in verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone that it be made bread, which Jesus certainly could have done. All he would have had to do is speak the word, and he would have had his hunger satisfied. But go back to verse 1. He's led of the Spirit. He's where he is because that's where God wants him to be. And so the devil tempts him at his weakest moment. Just turn these stones into bread. You can eat all you want. Think how good it's going to feel, how good the bread's going to taste if you make the bread. And in verse 4, Jesus said to him, it is written, Satan, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. We live by something more than the physical and the material. We live for something that's greater than to live for pleasure, pleasing ourselves. We live by the Word of God, by the unifying principle that drives us as believers. Then in verse 5, the devil took him up on a high mountain and showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Kingdoms of the world, that represents power. That represents political influence. That represents wealth that generally comes with that. That represents influence. All the things that so many people are living for today. The devil took him up and showed him the kingdoms of the world. And in verse 6, the devil said to him, all, the all this I will give you. Stop. Hold on a minute. Jesus didn't say that doesn't belong to you. That's mine. 
because you see, Satan is the prince of this world right now. Don't forget that. You see, when Adam sinned, Adam was given dominion over the whole world. Now listen to me, this is really an important little doctrine I'm going off on a brief detour for. But you see, when, when Adam, who had been given dominion over the whole world, sinned, he put himself under the authority of Satan. And so Jesus and John tells us a couple of times that Satan is the prince of this world. I hear people say, why is all this going on in the world today? Isn't the Lord in charge? Well, he is ultimately, but right now, he, Satan is also the prince of the power of the air right now. And Jesus didn't argue with him and say, Satan, in verse number six, it's not yours to give. I'm, don't you know who I am? Jesus didn't say that to him, did he? The devil said, all this I'll give to you because he is in charge of it. If you don't think so, just watch the news. All this I will give you and the glory of them for it's delivered unto me and to whomsoever I give it. And we see him give it to people that misuse it, don't we? Constantly, continuously. If you will worship me, I'll give it all to you. You can have it. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So in the first temptation, it was to use his divine power and prerogatives to turn a stone into bread. It was the temptation to live for pleasure. The second temptation here, the temptation is to bow down to Satan for power and wealth and prestige. And the third temptation, verse number nine, he brought him up to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. Josephus said the highest pinnacle of the temple was 450 some feet from the bottom of the uh, Kidron Gorge. And so he's sitting on a pinnacle 450 feet high. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, if that satanic doubt, if you are the son of God, cast yourself down from hence. It's written in the book of Psalms. He'll give you his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands, they will bear thee up. Lest at any time you even dash your foot against a stone. Throw yourself down. Do something really sensational. The whole world will see. Temptation number three, presume upon God. You have a promise in the Bible that it says if you, if, if you even dash your foot on a stone, the angels will come and rescue you. Live presumptuously. Abdicate your personal responsibility, what you know you ought to do. Just fling yourself down there. Be dependent on the angels to come and, and rescue you. And Jesus said to him, Verse number 12, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And he answered again from the, all three answers of Jesus, by the way, from the book of Deuteronomy, he answered from scripture. He had memorized so much scripture. He knew so much scripture. Every, every temptation, Jesus took out the sword of the word of God and answered him with a direct passage of scripture. That's how you overcome temptation. In verse 13, and when the devil ended the temptation, he departed from him for a season. 
Now listen to me. Let me bring it all together, hopefully. In rejecting the devil's offers, Jesus was saying, temptation one, I will not live for pleasure to fill my belly even when I have been hungered for 40 days. I will not live. The unifying principle in my life is not going to be pleasure. Number two, the second temptation, the unifying principle of my life is not to live for power and position and influence. I don't want the kingdom on the basis it's being offered. And the third temptation is I'm not going to live my life in dependency on even the angels. I'm not going to abdicate my personal responsibility in order to have people's attention or knowledge of me and my exploits. I'm not going to do that. And so the unifying principle that Jesus was, in rejecting the devil's offers, Jesus was rejecting all of that, those other principles. I'll not live for pleasure. I will not live for power or wealth or money or prestige. And I won't surrender my personal responsibility for my life to anybody else. I will depend upon God. And so here's what Jesus was saying. The unifying principle that's going to guide my life, and I hope you're listening because it's the same principle that must guide my life as a Christian. The unifying principle that's going to guide my life is going to be obedience to my Father because I love Him and love for all people. That's the unifying principle. That's what Colossians 3 and 14 says, isn't it? The unifying principle of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will live my life in obedience to God's Word out of love for Him and love for all people. And Colossians says, above all, put on love. The unifying principle that will bind everything in a person's life together in unity. Now, let me tell you, the temptations have not changed. The same temptations that Jesus faced, you and I are facing them today. And you face them, by the way, at every age. You'll never get over them. They never will cease coming. The temptations haven't changed. You know, I think you would agree with me that there's a crisis in our society, in America. It's probably, well, it's, it's worldwide because it's human nature. There's a crisis of love today in our society, a crisis of a lack of love. Let me say it like that. And Satan still is alive and he's still tempting people. And he has all these ideas floating around that challenge the principle of loving God first, loving neighbor second, and living your life in that way. And he's going to challenge you with them every day of your life. He's still challenging me with them. I promise you that. What are those principles? I have about four or five of them here. You may want to take notes. You got room there. First of all, there's the idea of putting self first. Self first. The belief that I'm going to have a fulfilled life if I pursue, if I, if I live in direct pursuit 
of my own happiness, self first. The philosophy of me first, we hear it said like that sometimes, or what's in it for me, or it's all about me. We hear it today in all kinds of strange ways. If you do a lot of reading or watching media and so on, you'll, you'll see it constantly popping up, the idea of self first. We hear people talk about I, I, we're to love ourselves first. And uh, after all, if you don't love yourself, you can't love anybody else. And you hear that. Boy, what a satanic philosophy that is. And uh, I, I even read recently somebody said, I made a commitment to be my own best friend. Isn't, isn't that touching today? Wouldn't you like to have, send somebody a card with that on it, huh? <laughs> but it's one of those philosophies that are floating around. About a year or two, maybe a couple of years ago, I was sitting somewhere and I picked up a woman's magazine. I, won't, I don't even remember the name of it. But I was in the office, I don't know if it was a doctor's office or some, somewhere, and I pick up this woman's magazine and I'm flipping through it. And I, I look at women's magazines every now and then because uh, my mother was a woman and so I guess I'm half a woman, you know, I don't know. Um, I picked up the magazine, now I'm flipping through it, seeing what interests women. And here is an article, a headline is big. It says, I married myself. And I looked at that and I said, that is not real, is it? Yeah, it was. It happened in Phoenix, Arizona. A woman decided that she did not want to be married in the traditional way. She was going to marry herself. She had dreamed all of her life since she was a little girl of having a wedding, but she didn't want to have a wedding to a man. So she went out and bought a fine wedding dress. She got a caterer to do all the stuff for the reception. She got a pastor who was willing to go through this. <laughs> I won't even comment on that. <laughs> I mean, would he marry a chicken? I don't know. <laughs> but he married her. And here's a beautiful church in Phoenix. And she's walking down the aisle. And the pastor is standing there. And he performs a ceremony that she had written. And then they had a reception. And she invited all of her friends. I, I didn't make this up. You can probably Google it. It's about a woman who married herself. And uh, you see, it's the whole idea. That's the extreme, of course, but sometimes the extremes illustrate the trends. And the idea of putting self first, and because of that, people get divorces. People even abandon their children. People abandon all sense of responsibility because of this philosophy of self first. And then there's a second one. It's experience first. That... If I'm going to live a fulfilled life, I have to have every kind of possible experience. And particularly, that's a big thing right now. This is the cult of busyness. This is why people in America are so busy. They're like the dog chasing his tail. It's one round of activities all the time, all the time. The idea that activity will provide fulfillment for me. And so I want to see it all. Do it all. Feel it all. You only go around once. There's a man in the Bible that had that philosophy. 
Why he did, I don't know, because he was wise. His name was Solomon. And yet you look at his life and read his work, and some of them are wonderful, God-inspired proverbs and so on. But in Ecclesiastes, he goes down into his soul. If there ever was a jaded, depressed, unhappy old man, it was Solomon. He tried riches. He tried sex. He tried architecture. He tried farming. He tried raising horses. He had a couple of thousand of them. He tried wisdom. He talks about how he worshiped at the, at the altar of wisdom. And then he wrote a book about it. And you open the page, the first page, the first chapter, the first sentence of his book after he tried all of that. What does he say? Vanity of vanities. I tried every experience that's known to man. I had the money to do it. I had the time and opportunity. I tried it all. And you know what it is? It's vanity. It's meaningless. I didn't find fulfillment in any of that list of things that I just shared with you. The cult of busyness. Experience first. You've got to experience everything or you won't have a fulfilled life. Dr. Lakin, my old friend, said, so many are busy to cover the hollowness of an empty life. So many people are so busy to cover up the hollowness of an empty life. And then those who, there are those who put pleasure first. The philosophy that life is for pleasure. The philosophy that of the hedonist, if you will. And so, usually that leads to immorality, to drinking, to partying, to drugs. You only go around once. If it feels good, do it. And the devils always use that philosophy to tempt people. Now, it might not be all those things I just said either. Sometimes it's just a temptation to a life of ease. I just go fishing every day. Forget life. I like to sit out there. That's where I get pleasure. It doesn't have to be bad pleasure. It can be any kind of pleasure, God-ordained pleasure. And pleasure is wonderful, and we all need pleasure in our life. But don't confuse the good times with a good life. Don't confuse good times with a good life. They're different things. And so pleasure is not the unifying principle that will pull everything together for you. And then there's freedom, the principle of self-expression. Glenn Campbell sung a song about it. You know how old I am now. Gentle on my mind. And I can drop in and I can drop out and we don't have to get married and I'll put my stuff behind your couch, but I know the door is always open. You're gentle on my mind. Pretty song. I like the rhythm, the harmony. The words are kind of philosophically out there for a Christian, aren't they? Principle first, the, the anthem of the hippies. Do your own thing, man. 
freedom without responsibility. I just don't want responsibility. Do you know now in places in America and some of our larger cities, particularly there are ceremonies that people are having to celebrate their divorce? They're inviting all their friends in, having a party, having a big reception, spending a lot of money just to celebrate a divorce. I'm free. I don't have the kids. I don't have the commitments of life. Now, we all need independence. There's nobody more for freedom than me. But you know what? If you have freedom and you don't have the deep relationships of family and church and friends, no amount of pleasure is going to fill your life. It's not a recipe for, for, for fulfillment. You know, that's what, one reason we emphasize Sunday school here is if you come to church here and you come just to come to a worship service and you never get involved with people at a real personal level and you're never in a small group where you can develop those relationships, you really are missing so much of what this whole thing is about. And there'll come a day you'll probably wish, I had friends, I had relationships, that all the pleasure in the world is not enough. And then there's a last one I'll mention to you, number five, and it's success first. Success is defined by money or achievement or position or winning in whatever form. And that is, we want to be successful. I'm for success. I want to be a success. But you know what? It's not the unifying principle. Go back again, if you will, Colossians chapter 3 Above all else, put on the love. It's the unifying thing. It's the thing that makes everything else in life come together and gives fulfillment. It was the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do all these things? I've just mentioned five things to you there. Self first, experience first, pleasure first, freedom first, success first. What do they have in common? They're all about self. They're all, none of them would qualify under agape love, would they? The whole point of agape love is I'm serving the Lord and I'm serving other people. It's not a feeling-oriented thing. It is a principle-oriented thing. I do the right thing. It's a behavior. It's an action. It's a verb. It's not a feeling that I wait on. I serve the Lord because I love him and I love his people. And so the life principle of God, the life principle of love for God and other people, I just remind you it was, number one, it was the principle of the way that the Lord Jesus lived. And you read and you look at all the great figures of history. You visit the museums, you read the history books, you look at the statuary across the whole world. And who is it that is the most admired, the most influential figure in all of history? Even in the, world, in the lands where Christianity is not dominant, still, even in those places, it is Jesus Christ who is the dominant figure in all of history. Even the unbelievers will acknowledge that. He's the most admired. He's the most influenced. He's the most listened to. He's the most respected of any person in history. And he did none of the things, none of the things 
that we associate with greatness. He never had a position. He was never elected to anything. He never had any money. In fact, he was a very poor man. He was from a little tiny backwater town. He had nothing that would give him uh, the, the, the symbols of success in the world. He went out as an itinerant preacher teaching a bunch of ragtag fishermen and laborers and tax collectors. And yet, today, 2,100 years later, he still is the most dominant figure in history. His life principle was what? You can find it in a lot of places. John 10, 11 would be a good starter. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. It's about loving others. All these other things have their place. We're not against pleasure. Don't go out of here, please, and say, a preacher's against pleasure. Baptists are against a good time. No, we're not. But the word first, I put it there on every one of them. It's not experience. It's not how many things you get to do and how many places you get to go. It's not how much wealth you pile up. It's not how many good times you have. If you can't have one principle that unifies your life and that principle is the same principle, the life of Jesus, you've missed it, my friend. It was the life that Jesus lived. It's the philosophy that Jesus taught. I looked in my Bible, and only in a brief period of time, I think there are more. I didn't have time to do it, but I found six different passages, six in the Gospels that said something like this. Whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. And doing those five things I listed is saving your life. It's, it's living for self. Whosoever shall try to save his life, he'll lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, he'll find it. Will you open your Bible with me? It's John 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse number 24. Yes, this sums it up. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat. Now, that's just a seed, a wheat seed or a corn seed, whichever you want to make it. Except a seed fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. You can put that seed upon a shelf and it'll stay there a hundred years. And it'll always just be there, a dead-looking seed. Except a seed fall into the ground, this whole earth, and it die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it'll bring forth much fruit. And he that loveth his life shall lose it. But he that hateth loves less his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. Except the seed fall into the ground. That's our life. If I will invest my life in the service of God and other people, and I will love them, I will live a productive life. That seed will bring forth fruit again.
yesterday afternoon I was here, and on Saturday I come in. Usually the building is pretty much empty and everybody going home. It was about 4, 4.30. Man, what a beautiful day. And I thought, I'm going to get in my car, and sometimes I just go back here on the back of the property and sit in my car and pray for the services. That's when I have my heavy prayer time. And yesterday was so pretty, I said, I was circling around, so I just went over here and sat in the garden where the sower is. And I just looked up there at that thing, and, and that's when I thought about this verse. The sower, sowing the seed. God's plan and his will for every one of us, we're all sowers. We're not takers, we're givers. We enjoy life. We want to enjoy life. We want to have fulfillment. We want to live life to the fullest. We want to experience. But if that's all I got, but if I'm sowing the seed and it's falling in the ground and I'm dying to self, that's what that verse is teaching, and I'm sublimating my desires to the Word of God, and to him, then I'm going to live a productive life. I never have heard anybody say, I regret living for the Lord. Boy, I regret all those hours I spent in church. I sure regret those tracts I handed out and the times I witnessed. I, I sure regret every dollar I gave to further the Lord's word. I never heard, heard one person say that. Maybe they thought it. Nobody said it in my presence. Because you know what? When we check out of here, the only thing we're going to take with us is the Word of God and what we've done for the Lord Jesus Christ and other people. That's it. That's the unifying principle, the love of God that sacrifices even immediate gratification for long-term satisfaction. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please.